The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. The energy transition to so-called clean power is all the rage in Washington, D.C. these days. Canada's Minister of Natural Resources was in D.C. last week to meet with U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm and other leaders to advance, quote, shared opportunities to accelerate climate action and the transition to net zero emissions, unquote. Granholm said, we will work to accelerate the clean energy transition in both countries, spurring job growth and ushering in a 100% clean energy future. A few weeks ago, Canada's environment minister boasted to a CTV news show that since Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took power in 2015, they have spent $110 billion on the energy transition. All to stop climate change, of course. Jay, are we really going to have an energy transition away from coal, oil and natural gas? No, uh, it's physically impossible. We won't have it, but uh, as you point out, We've spent trillions of dollars worldwide uh, trying to do it, thinking about it, and everybody will suffer as a result of the attempt because of higher prices for everything. And then ultimately, we will be having brownouts and blackouts as a very common occurrence because obviously wind and solar cannot uh, support our standard of living. Uh, If it was successful, which it cannot be, uh, it would basically be taking us back to the middle of the 19th century in terms of our standard of living. And ultimately, nobody wants that, although around the world, people are already suffering with higher energy prices and in some cases, brownouts and blackouts. But there will be a line in the sand across which most people will not be willing to cross. So I'm long-term optimistic, but certainly not short-term. And your government in Canada and our government here in the United States are uh, behind the insanity totally. So I could not be more excited than I am now to have uh, our guest, Mark Mills, who has a long history in the energy field, has written widely to answer a host of questions I have to enlighten our listeners as to what this energy transition is really all about, what's possible, what is not possible. So, uh, Tom, introduce Mark to our audience. Yeah, sure, Jay. Mark Mills is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute in New York City. He's also a faculty fellow 
at the Illinois-based Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. Mark is a strategic partner with the Energy Tech Venture Fund, Montrose Lane, and the author of several books that we'll actually link to under the interview when it goes to podcast on Monday. Mark served in the White House Science Office under President Ronald Reagan and subsequently provided science and technology policy counsel to a variety of private sector firms, as well as the Department of Energy and U.S. research laboratories. In 2016, Mark was named Energy Writer of the Year by the American Energy Society. He has testified before Congress numerous times and briefed state public service commissions and legislatures. He holds a degree in physics from Queens University, which is just down the road from where I live in Ottawa. I really encourage people to tune in to Mark's new podcast, The Last Optimist. I did that last night. You can find it simply by searching for The Last Optimist podcast on Google. So welcome to the show, Mark. Delighted to be here. And uh, I lived in Ottawa for a number of years as well. Oh, right. So you got our cold winters. <laughs> yeah, I did. We used to skate on the canal. Yeah. Well, well, Mark, great. I have been following your writings for as long as I can remember. And it is really exciting to have you on the show with all your knowledge about energy yesterday, today, and in the future. And I have many questions for you. Some will appear to be uh, duplicating each other in order to drive home the absurdity for our listeners as to the supposed energy transition to so-called clean energy away from fossil fuels. Uh, This is going on around the world, basically with all governments. Are the government plans around the world based on pure insanity, (laughs) stupidity, or politics, in your opinion? (laughs) That's That's what they call in the physics world a loaded question. First, let's calibrate that it's mostly European countries and the United States that are doing this in Canada, North America. The rest of the country of the world are not, are, not, uh, are not making anything resembling the spending of the attempts for, for what it's worth. But, that, you know, we're, we're the big dogs, so to speak, in the world economy. I think the right way to, to think about this is sort of two categories. Let me, let me be diplomatic by saying I think a lot of people actually believe that an energy transition is possible and happening. I think they believe that and that they want it. I know they want it, but they actually believe it's possible and happening. Let's just give them credit for, belie- for believing it. The problem is the data show and just the facts of what's happened, that there is no energy transition underway. And more importantly, to your point, it's not possible that the idea as it's framed, which is to transition away from hydrocarbons, away from oil, gas, and coal in its entirety to a world based on mainly wind, solar, and batteries. So it's not renewables in the broadest sense of the word that the transition is promoting. It's almost entirely based on lots of windmills, solar arrays, and batteries, batteries for cars, of course, and batteries for the electric grid so that, you know, you can keep the lights on ostensibly when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So that's the thesis. The problem is that it's not happening is the data show. We can talk about that. And it, and more importantly, it doesn't really matter how much money. I mean, this is the, the point I'm trying to make in my recent writings. It doesn't matter what the mandates are. It doesn't matter how much 
we subsidize it. It doesn't matter how much consumers would tolerate higher costs by trying to affect the transition. It physically won't happen in the timeframes that people are talking about, which is, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years. There aren't the materials and the machines and the hardware. We just, it can't, it can't happen sort of locked into the physics of the world we live in. And it sounds like I'm being a pessimist. <laughs> I have my podcast called The Last Optimist. I'm not being a pessimist or an optimist when it comes to infrastructures for society, but rather you know, just a realist. So Ottawa wants to transition away from fossil fuels. And you'd laugh, Mark, having lived here. They yeah. want to have 710 industrial wind turbines taller than the Peace Tower and 36 <laughs> square kilometers of solar panels. I mean, they want to do it all by 2050 to get to net zero. I mean, what do you think of that? <laughs> well, first, if they, if they built that many, which is not that much, the, the lights will go out frequently in Ottawa. And the fiction that they're net zero, as you all well know, is that that's really only, let's just say, roughly a quarter to a third of the energy footprint of a city. It's not just keeping the lights on, but everything in the city, everything in all the houses, everything in society is either constructed directly or indirectly from hydrocarbons or requires the consumption of hydrocarbons somewhere else to deliver the machines and products and services that are used there, including, by the way, uh, windmills and solar arrays. Mm -hmm. Somewhere on the order of 90% of all polysilicon, the silicon used to make the solar modules are fabricated in China on coal-fired grids. Mm. And so that's there's a lot of hydrocarbons being used to make the solar panels. And there's no plan by China to, quote, transition away from coal for at least 50 years. I mean, they've participated, as you well know, in the uh, climate discussions and the big confabs, but they've set themselves targets that are even further in the future, which of course is, allows them to essentially ignore it today, which is what they're doing. You could put on the solar stations made with coal. You, well, you can, because <laughs> yeah, exactly. they, they are. And in fact, yeah. the fact that world coal prices have tripled in the last couple of years because of the policies of world governments, that's resulted in the cost of solar modules going up. So solar modules are about 50% more expensive today than they were two years ago. And so not only are they made from hydrocarbons, but they're getting more expensive. So this sort of makes a lie of two of the central myths about solar power. There's sort of three central myths, but two of them are uh, that they don't have much to do with hydrocarbons. Obviously they do. Not only do you use coal to make them, but you have to use oil uh, to transport the modules around the world and the rest of the infrastructure. And of course, the other, the other fiction is that they're getting cheaper in the future. At the moment, they're getting more expensive, not cheaper. What saddens me is that so many people around the world have been conned into believing in the possibility of transitioning to another form of energy. It tells me that we are not doing a very good job of educating people in a little bit of science to understand the impossibility of it. The leadership, I think, they have other goals, and that's ultimately to have to ration energy, giving the government more power. I mean, I think all governments know that they can't convert to electric cars. And if they build a lot of electric cars, 
they're going to have to decide who can drive them and who can't. So I think there is a great deal of, of power politics involved in what I consider the insanity, because to me, I look at when they were burning witches because of crop failures back in the 16th century. Uh, I think what's going on today is no less insane and extremely unfortunate. And as you made it clear, it isn't going to happen, but how much suffering will there be uh, on the way? I want to next ask you about what it was like working with uh, President Reagan as something of a science advisor. Where did he stand? This is kind of before all the talk of the energy transition, but what were his opinions with regard to energy development within the, our country? Let's calibrate a couple things. I was a young, <laughs> young man, a, a kid, as they say, in the Reagan White House science office. And what that meant was that in that White House, like a contemporary of mine who was a speechwriter, you know, Peggy Noonan, who's far better known than me, she, like me, never met the president. Uh, the, kids, the kids in that White House didn't meet with the president. We did our job, kept our cubicles. And I, I worked for the science advisor in the science advisor's office. But I did, I did have a lot of exposure to the, we'll call it the political philosophy of the, that administration. And I, I would say, you know, President Reagan was, he only gave one speech on the subject of energy. I, I, I know that because I, was, I had a hand in recrafting part of it because that's you know, what, we, what we did after the speechwriters did their part. And uh, he pretty much adopted a posture that no other president, Republican or Democrat, has adopted since the energy crises began under Nixon in 1973-74, which is largely hands-off, largely, not entirely, but largely hands-off. That is, you know, it wasn't like he was a, lib uh, a libertarian and didn't think government had a role. Reagan, you know, obviously had a, a, a classic conservative's view of government role in research and military, but he didn't. He didn't believe that the government had the solutions to the uh, challenges that we had to face. And remember, Reagan became president on the heels of the second great oil shock of the uh, post World War II era. The first one was again the seventy three, seventy four oil embargo which raised oil prices almost overnight by 400%. And the second shock was 79. Carter was president, which was the Iranian revolution, which took off world markets, an amount of oil roughly comparable to what happened in 73, 74. So the, the stagflation that was triggered, this should sound very familiar to us today, by high energy prices, high oil prices, and high inflation, and then a recession because of the high interest rates that were extant at the time, I mean, extraordinarily high, really was instrumental in the, you know, the, the Reagan revolution, getting him elected and changing the policies of the country towards more of an orientation towards unleashing markets to produce. Because the way you conquer inflation is you stop government from printing money as a first order economics 101 lesson. And you uh, unleash the markets to produce, because if you can overproduce, you obviously, as anybody knows, prices go down when you overproduce. When you underproduce, prices go up. So you want markets to overproduce. You can't order them to do it, but if you get out of the way and cut regulations and, 
and cut taxes, markets tend to respond, whatever the product is, which is what happened. So it was, it was a very interesting time. It was for, so for me, as a, a young uh, former documented alien that immigrated from Canada to the United States, it was a very formative time in sort of seeing how policies are shaped in general. It's a, a terrific education for me. And I worked on you know nuclear nonproliferation and the, the missile defense Star Wars program as well. But And it was also... I guess it would, you have to say, kind of imprinted me politically in terms of my biases towards how, how governments should operate. Well, currently we have a secretary of energy who was a governor. And in my experience, she has not said anything uh, intelligent or knowledgeable about <laughs> our energy. And she strikes me as the worst possible person to fill the job, although I could say exactly the same for every member of Mr. Biden's cabinet. What is your opinion of her? Is she, does she have any smarts at all with regard to energy? Or has she bought the whole political line about running the country on wind and solar? Well, first of all, again, I'm, as a observer of politics and a former practitioner, <laughs> of the, of the uh, policy and politics games, we have to accept that a president puts into the office of the cabinet people that agree with the administration's policies. So she fully reflects what the president promised he would do if he were elected and the kind of people he promised he would put into power. So this is no surprise. It just it isn't. And, and I, let me also just be, you know, again, I, I'm I'm being diplomatic, but I I mean this in a genuine sense. I I don't never met her, and I and I don't doubt that she's smart. That it's not the issue for me. It's not a question of intelligence, stupidity, or not stupidity. Most of the challenge setting aside the politics, because you would expect the Secretary of Energy under Biden to do what the Secretary of Energy under Biden is doing. That's her job, and that was true of previous Secretaries of Energy. And you know, Secretary Perry did his job for President Trump because of the nature of that you know, political administration. I think a lot of what goes on is falls in the category of the uh, classic definition of the word ignorance, not as an insult, but as a fact. That is, there's a good deal of, of ignorance in the policymaking world of this administration, but it's been true of others of both flavors, about what's possible. I'm not a fan, for example, of, you know, Bush 43's ethanol policy, which he put into place as, you know, essentially his sop to environmental progress. I think that was a mistake on the basis of the facts of the energetics of ethanol, making ethanol, making fuel from food is sort of a movement in the opposite direction of the history of society. We want to free up, we use fuel to free up food. We don't, we don't, make food more expensive or rare by using it for to make fuel is just sort of backwards. So mm -hmm. it was, it was offensive to me at the time. And that was a Republican president. And I'm saying all that because, you know, we, we get what we voted for. We voted by the, we, I mean, the country a administration that promised this path. I think uh, the problem is that um, not so much one of education, you know, we have to go out and evangelize people so they understand truth. That's what I try to do. It's what you guys try to do. I think it's important to do that. But when the, when the consequences of the decisions become impossible to ignore, 
that's when the, uh, we'll call it the real education is happening. That's what's going on now. The energy-driven inflation that's going on now is a like literally fuel on the fire of inflation caused by uh, printing too much money. The big spending programs this administration, this Congress put in place is inflationary. That would have been bad by itself. But when you add to it policies that have exacerbated oil prices, and this is pre, pre-invasion of Ukraine, the policies that are in play that discourage production by definition increase prices. So energy inflation is coming simultaneous with monetary inflation. So it's a very uh, destructive combination. And the sort of third factor, the perfect storm, if you like, was the catalyst of the invasion of Ukraine, which causes the world to worry about losing one of the three biggest producers of oil and gas, which is Russia. Any loss of that supply is also inflationary. The worries about that caused oil and gas prices to really spike for about a month, about three weeks. Then they came back down, sort of the political premium. The war premium is relaxed again. So we're only at, what, $110 a barrel or something. So it's it's an interesting problem. I mean, here's a, I'll give you an example back going back to Reagan. One of the, the Secretary of Energy, the first Secretary of Energy under President Reagan, was also a governor. It was the governor of uh, North Carolina, sorry, South Carolina, um, you know, uh, Edwards. So uh, Jim Edwards, people made fun of him at the time because he wasn't an energy expert. In fact, he was a dentist before he became governor. And so there was a lot of people on the left, the Democrats made fun, made fun of Reagan appointing a dentist of all things as uh, secretary of energy. I happened to meet him later, not when he was secretary. I was, I was a kid, as I said, and he was he was a cabinet officer, but later, uh, some decade, a decade or two later, I got to meet him. What a, what a delightful, charming man! But what a brilliant man! What an interesting politician! But his job was political. That's what his job was. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the, the political jobs. You remember um, Secretary of Energy under President Clinton, Hazel O'Leary? She was a, a former executive of electric utilities, so she was actually a utility executive who knew something about electric utilities, but she was. You know, she's a good Democrat and was spent her her time as Secretary of Energy, essentially campaigning for the president and his policies. Mm. So I, I, it's a, that's a long way of saying that's Secretary of Energy's job, right? That's her job. What you'd hope, right, well, what you'd hope is that the, the policymakers in Congress and the president would give them a job that would be closer to align to reality. But that's to, back to your point. That's not what's going on. What she's trying well, to do you, is what you, won't happen. You've entered the topic of politics here and all the inflationary problems of printing money and uh, how things go up and down with the price of a barrel of oil. And you have a podcast with the word optimism in it. And, uh, <laughs> I consider myself a leading optimist. Uh, most people uh, think that I'm a Pollyanna and it's not true. I've always found that my optimism is based on ultimately facts that will pan out yeah. And so I'm very optimistic about the midterm election and what I expect to be a huge turn of power from the Democrats to the Republicans. And I've checked with many, many people and I'm hearing a turn of 40 to 70 seats. How could this affect what is going on with the energy transition and the things yeah. that you Described Now, I realize the president still has power, 
that cannot be overruled by the House of Representatives, but I also know that they control the budget, which means he'll have great difficulty installing new rules that cost any money because the House can stop that. Where do you see in your view of optimism what will be hopefully a sea change come next January after the House turns very strong to Republicans? Now, I'll also add people think, oh, the Republicans are no better than the Democrats. (laughs) I'm looking at dozens and dozens of new people uh, running for Congress who I think hopefully are, in fact, a new breed. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it does make me optimistic, too. But let me let me frame what I want to be optimistic about specifically in terms of our discussion. Right. The the thing that what, what would we like a government to do or not do with respect to the most important two big issues facing us today? One of them is inflation, as I was talking about energy driven inflation. And the other, of course, is dealing with the reality, the geopolitical reality of Europe's dependence and the world's dependence on Russian oil and gas, right? So if we want to, to conquer inflation, we need to at least make sure energy is cheap again. And by energy, as you know, and I think most people, maybe they know this, maybe they don't. So 84% of the world's energy is produced with hydrocarbons, uh, oil, gas, and coal. And a lot of people think it's a lot less than that because there's so much news about wind and solar. But it was 86% 20 years ago. So there's only been a two percentage point decline in 20 years. So 84% of all energy, hydrocarbons. A wind and solar combined globally provide just about 3% of world energy. And all the electric cars in the world today combined, the epic number that exists, uh, displace about 0.8% of world oil use. So inversely, what that means is we have energy inflation that is because the energy that we use is expensive. And if we want to make it cheaper, we have to produce more of it. So so that brings me sort of a long way to the question of how do we prevent the government from making energy more expensive? And how do we have the government help make energy cheaper and then delink us from Russia? So that would mean that we don't want policies passed that spend more on things that can't do that. Like we don't want more subsidies for wind, solar, and electric cars. That even, and the political bargaining set, I'll leave it alone. You know, let's just do a trade. You you can keep the subsidies you've got. It's okay. Uh, I understand why, why they're there. I mean, I'd rather not, you know, the expression die in that hill. The battle that I'd prefer to win is unleash America's productivity in oil gas. And in coal, for that matter, because the world still burns lots of coal. And we're, we are a, a huge potential coal exporter. We do export coal now, but we could export a lot more. How could that happen? Well, a Congress that was majority Republican and a Senate could, in principle, pass laws that the president can't veto. If you have a two-thirds majority, you can override a presidential veto. I think it's improbable that the Senate will be two-thirds Republican in this election, next election. But it's possible that there'll be enough Republicans combined with conservative Democrats, which still exist, that you could pass legislation, override a veto. So two things I think will happen going forward on the energy front is I think we'll we'll avoid causing more damage, which is not nothing, as I say, in politics. So that gives the United States economy a chance to 
take a breath and recover, which is good because our economy is extraordinarily powerful and capable of recovering. In fact, as you, as you know, the book that I've just published, which is more about technology than energy, is a very optimistic book about potential economic growth as we unleash this economy. So we'll recover if we can stop hammering it with destructive policies. And then, you know, we have some potential, it's not a zero chance of passing constructive policies for expanding domestic energy production. And again, in the, you know what the political trade would be. Think back to how we got so we could export a crude oil. It was illegal to export crude oil for over 40 years, as, as you know. Congress, in its, in its um, infinite wisdom, as you know, I'm being sarcastic, made it illegal to ex- export crude oil. Not illegal to export gasoline, but crude oil, bizarrely, because we were, quote, running out of it. This is, again, 45 years ago. And the only way that the law got reversed was making a trade. And the trade was to extend the wind credits in exchange for eliminating the ban on export of crude oil. And President Obama signed that into law without any ceremony. That's a, you know, in politics, that's a good trade, frankly. I mean, I, you don't get perfect outcomes in politics. We're not that smart. So that was a good trade. So the trade I'd, I'd make in the next Congress, and I don't know if this president would go for the trade, but it's possible. Um, is to provide incentives to kill inflation through more domestic production and exports to to Europe to help them delink from Russia in exchange for leaving all the subsidies alone that are already in place for wind and solar and and electric cars. Just just leave it alone. They're self-limiting. This is is the dirty little secret. They're they're self-limiting. We won't be able to build all the stuff people aspire to building for the transition because there aren't enough, you know, we haven't talked about this, but there aren't enough minerals. There's, there's not enough copper, just copper in the world to build all the machines imagined for wind, solar, and electric vehicles. There isn't enough copper being mined to do that. Just copper, never mind lithium, which has been talked about a lot in the news or cobalt. There's not enough cop- copper. Is the, I believe the first mineral that human beings mined, it's mines de- to prehistory before before written history, about 6,000 BC. And we, so we know a lot about copper. We've been mining it a long time. A lot of copper in the earth's crust, but it's not so easy to mine it. And we aren't mining enough to, to meet the transition goals. It takes a long time to open copper mines. So the, the, the aspirations are self-limiting is what's going to happen. All the promises to be all electric vehicles aren't going to happen because there's not going to be enough copper, never mind enough aluminum and nickel cobalt and lithium it just won't be uh, not forever but certainly not in the time frames that people are throwing around for the next 10 or 20 years well that's a great place for us to go for a break we'll be right back after the oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years but our diet and the way we eat has creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums for better oral health Get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. 
trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Mark. Constantly, we have problems with the fact that wind and solar just don't provide adequate energy. They're intermittent, not dependable. And the same is true as batteries. People seem to think (laughs) that wind and solar can be supported by batteries. And we know conclusively that really isn't true. But then the public thinks that the technology will improve and the day will come when I suppose we can make the the wind turbines uh, turn with hardly any air movement or the solar cells work at night, as absurd as that is, and that uh, electric cars will get better and less expensive. There are limits to technology. And I think in this particular case, the the public has a very wrong idea. Would Would you speak to that? Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating issues, I think, about forecasting in general, because, the, and, and of course, the way forecasting affects public perceptions and, pub, and public policy. And in, in fact, uh, again, I'll, I'll self-promote my new book, because my new book, The Cloud Revolution, is about more than the cloud. It's about materials and energy, machines, robots, drones, and you know, the structure of our economy in the next decade. And in particular, I, 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 pro- I propose to make in my book a forecast about technology. So I, like a lot of people, I'm a forecaster. We all, we all, we actually are all forecasters. We, that's in human nature, but I'm making some technology forecasts. But in my book, I write about in several chapters, the question you raise, which is, which is the really important one. It's important if you're an investor, because you're investing your own money or other people's money, you'd think it would be important if you're in policymaking, but of course you're investing other people's money. So it's, it's a less, it's a, the consequences are not as high unless you get voted out of office. First of all, I think people's reflexive belief and faith in technology is well-placed broadly speaking. And I'm sure you'd agree for the obvious reason, the principal reason that, Americans live so much better, longer, healthier lives 
not perfect, but the difference between the quality of life, the things we can do and the wealth that exists in our country now compared to a century ago is entirely because of technology. Stipulating that technology flourishing can only happen in markets that let businesses function and build machines and services out of the technologies. But if there weren't new technologies building uh, greater productivity into an economy, there wouldn't be wealth expansion. So the faith in that is well-placed. And when people look around and say, oh, look at smartphones, look what happened here. You hear the analogy all the time. Nobody predicted the cellular phone or smartphone, which by the way, is not true. Nobody predicted it. And look at how fast computers have improved. That's how technology works. So people make category errors. So this is the key to forecasting to get back to your, your core question. So if you looked at airplanes, when air aviation industry began, uh, you would, you could draw a curve and look how much faster airplanes got every year. And then you would predict that airplanes would soon go um, so fast. You could fly an airplane to the moon, except that there's no air in space. And so airplanes don't work in space. So, and then airplanes in air, uh, if they're propeller driven hits physics limits, because the air cavitates when you try to, you know, pull or push air with propellers, you, you, you can't go faster than the speed of sound with things that are essentially using sound to move, sort of, so to speak. So he had, a, he had to invent a new technology, which is a, a jet engine. So the, the faith that a new technology would come along, if, if you like, would be well-placed. But a jet engine is not the same as a propeller-driven airplane. And to go to the moon, you can't use a jet engine because it burns air oxygen. So you have to invent the rocket engine. So the faith that we could get to the moon with rockets is well-placed, but that required the rocket engine. And now we have, let's just to continue with that analogy, because I think it's a way for people to think about energy because it's similar. The faith that we're going to have lots of commercial space travel really is an extrapolation that isn't anchored in the physics of getting you know, mass into orbit. Even as good as Elon Musk has become with SpaceX, it's, it's really tough fighting gravity. The costs are off the charts high. We're not going to have big moon colonies until we come up with something different for getting um, people and objects into space. We need something, a leap equivalent to going from, you know, uh, jets to rockets. And, you know, we could speculate what that would be, but it doesn't exist. So energy is the same, right? We go, we go and invent uh, solar cells and they get a lot better very quickly. They're more than tenfold cheaper than they were 15 years ago. That's, a, that's a, in effect that the quote exponential decline in costs, they've gotten a lot better and they do produce cheap electricity when the sun's shining indisputably. So, mm -hmm. but there's so a physical limit. yeah, I mean, so that's, there's two things about that. Do they still, do they keep getting cheaper yet? Cause they're, they're pretty cheap. Um, not that cheap, but let's say pretty cheap. The problem is they aren't going to get any cheaper significantly going forward because we've basically engineered out most of the costs. So now the cost of a solar module is utterly dominated by the cost of the materials it's made from. About 70% of the cost of a solar module is in the bill of materials, the minerals and materials you use to make it, which is another way of saying the future cost of solar energy is now tied to the mining industry, which doesn't have a learning curve that looks like computers by any means. So they're not going to get a lot cheaper. And as cheap as they are, their real cost, come around to your original point, their real cost is at least three times higher than their apparent cost. Because let's just say you, you want to produce electricity all the time, 
probably a good idea. If you want to just use wind and sun, you have to build more capacity than you need at the moment the wind is blowing or the sun is shining to produce extra electricity to store it for when, it, when it's not. Okay, fair enough. But that, what that means is when somebody says wind and solar are at parity, which we hear all the time with hydrocarbon machines, that's not true. They're, they're only at parity if they can produce energy at the same time, and they don't. So they actually, in a delivered energy sense, are three times more expensive. If they are cost exactly the same per unit of power, per unit of energy delivered, they're three times more expensive because you need three of them to produce energy, three times as much energy when the sun's shining. Mm-hmm. Then you have to pay for storage, the batteries. And this gets us to how cheap can batteries get because they've gotten cheap as well. well. Batteries have the same problem as solar machines and all machines. We've gotten so good at building them. The new lithium batteries are incredible revolution in chemical, electrochemical energy storage, really remarkable. And manufacturers have become incredibly good at producing them at scale at low costs. So much so that now for them, 70% of the cost of a lithium battery is in the materials that you mine to make the battery from. Or put differently, it, if, the, if the overhead machines and the labor were free, but the cost of the minerals went up, the batteries get more expensive, right? And, and that's exactly what's happening right now is the demand for these minerals, copper, nickel, and uh, lithium and manganese and uh, all the rest of the pieces we need to make batteries, aluminum, a lot of aluminum, amazing amounts of aluminum. They get more expensive as you have more demands from the batteries get more expensive. So that's, that's what's happening. And the, so the faith in technology is a category error. And if solar cells, let me end with an analogy to really drive this home. If it were the case that our faith in technology and computing, which is where this reflexive affection for the incredible progress technology, it's all coming out of the computing era, which is profoundly different kind of physics. As you know, information, physics information is different than the physics of moving people. Talking and coding are not the same as welding and growing. They just aren't the same domains of physics. But that category error means that people are thinking that we'll keep getting better at the same rate. But if that were possible, then before long, a solar panel the size of a postage stamp could produce enough electricity to run a skyscraper. But we know for a fact that that's physically impossible in the universe we live in. That will never happen. It just won't happen. And if batteries got better at the rate that computers got better, those technology, then soon battery the size of a paperback book would have enough energy stored into it to fly a, a Boeing to Asia from Chicago. That will never happen except in comic books and in science fiction. Now I say never, let's just stipulate maybe a century from now, there's new physics another Einstein comes along and we find the kind of thing that it's in science fiction, but in terms of the physics, we know that'll never happen. In fact, the quantity of batteries you would need to fly an aircraft to store the amount of energy that's put in the fuel tanks of an aircraft, those batteries, and let's use Tesla batteries because they're amongst the best batteries manufactured in the world today. They really are they're great batteries. You'd need a quantity of batteries that weigh three times as much as the entire airplane <laughs> repl- replicate well, the fuel carrier plane carries. Okay. Yeah. That leads me to my very next question, but I first, want to tell you, and I'm not blowing smoke, the first thing I'm going to do uh, when we finish this program 
is run out and buy your book because I'm quite <laughs> sure a lot of what you've been talking about is right out of the book and I can't wait to read the whole thing. But my question is, why do people not realize that this whole energy transition isn't going to uh, fly a plane or, or run a, uh, a ship? Where, where is the disconnect in their lack of understanding yeah. of these simple things? Well, we, well, setting aside that there's a, um, there's a, there's a, an innumeracy. This is not physics that most of what I, when I talk about energy, and I'm sure it's the same for you, it's it's arithmetic. It's not even mathematics. You you can you don't you don't have to know a lot of physics. You can use magic, Doctor Google, to look up a fact or two, and and just do arithmetic and realize we just can't build the machines the scale people are talking about. It's not, but people don't do that, and there's a lot of innumeracy, broadly speaking, and that's not a new phenomena. There, there was a book remember 20 years ago called Enumerate. It was a mathematician's book. It was quite good worried about politicians for enumerate and they are <laughs> that's the it's the nature of human nature let's just say so it, it, and, it, and what we've done is the the, the energy debate itself has become extraordinarily politicized politicized before the climate debates it got politicized as the idea of an energy transition began when the first oil crises happened Government policies were directed at not producing more oil and gas, but finding replacements for it. And tip, typically, it was a Democrats versus Republican thing, right? The, and it's a, you know, we could go into the psychology and politics of history, but uh, why that happened, but it just did, right? And somehow, if you're labeled as pro oil, gas, and coal, you're uh, a Republican. If you're pro wind and solar, you're a Democrat. And it's, it's sort of silly. Elect electrons can't tell politics. Um, people just want cheap electrons that are reliable, but that's what's happened. And then we added to that what fueled this really crazy idea that we can transition away from hydrocarbons is, of course, the climate debate where the proposition is that we have to, we have to try, we just have to do it because we can't be emitting carbon dioxide. And, and generally speaking, so I've stopped, and you, you probably know this from my writings, I stopped writing about climate issues a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago or longer, there's a chapter on, on climate change in the book I co-authored with Peter Huber, contemporaneous with peak oil theory in 2005, Peter and I published a book called The Bottomless Well. So we came out with a book predicting correctly what would happen to oil and gas because of technology, contemporaneous with the world enthralled with the idea that we were running out of oil and gas at peak oil and the Huppert curve that you are intimately familiar with. So we were contrarians then. Uh, my colleague, Fran Peter, has since tragically died, but the, the debates got hypertrophied now with the animation that we have to do it. And what I usually tell people who feel very passionate about the climate debate without having to engage the climate issue is that it, if you believe your science about climate, let's just stipulate they believe, they, they seem to believe what they're saying. Some people maybe not self-examining, but let's just say, just again, to be diplomatic, they really believe it. They might respond, well, you have to believe the physics of energy too. And so whatever you think is going to happen from burning hydrocarbons, whatever you think your models tell you that may be true or not true, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the physics of energy because you can't run society and civilization without burning hydrocarbons. It's not going to happen. So the physics 
and science show you that's not going to happen. Since, mm-hmm. since you're a believer in science, you knew that you should believe that fact. And they're not incommensurate facts, because then that would say, well, usually the response from people is, well, what do we do about climate change then? That's the obvious inevitable response. And my answer is always the same. The climate will change. And I'm telling you something that you know better than I do, but history shows us there's no static climate. And, you know, nature, as I wrote in my book, has nature has been trying to kill humanity forever, ever since the dawn of humans. You know, nature is hostile to humans, both in terms of pathogens and and natural disasters. And what we do with technology and money is insulate ourselves, provide resilience against nature's predations. So the answer to climate change is, is we need more money and more technology of resilience in all its forms to insulate human beings and our infrastructures from natural disasters and climate change and, and other forms of mm-hmm. attack from nature. People don't like that answer because they, they want to go do something about it. But this is like saying, I want to do something about gravity and and don't recognize jumping off a cliff means that you'll die. (laughs) Yeah, or continental drift. Uh, You know, I just wanted to go back and emphasize one point. And I'm translating what you said. And tell me if this is correct. If you want to generate a thousand megawatt hours with a power plant, you need a thousand megawatt nuclear station. But to do it with wind and solar, you need 3000 megawatts. You need you need 3000 megawatts of windmills or solar arrays, and then you need roughly 2,000 megawatt hours of storage, right? Depending on how long you want to keep lights on and how often and frequently where you live, it's not windy or sunny. And that, or or put, I I did a calculation, which I think is roughly correct. There's about a, for every gigawatt of wind solar, you need a gigaton of batteries. Which is a lot of batteries, a lot of materials. And keep in mind, for every for every uh, ton of batteries that you create, you have to dig out of the earth five hundred tons of rock. So the gigaton is five hundred gigatons of of excavation. So it's it's a big environmental cost issue. Then you know what the response that oh it's always windy somewhere sunny somewhere so we'll build more transmission lines. That's the that's the response that the modelers are making. Well, the, that that response has two problems. One is more transmission lines is expensive, adds system operation risk, and that's not nothing because almost all of the increased costs in American electricity over the last two decades is because of increased transmission to accommodate increased solar and wind. And that's raised rates for Americans instead of lowered them. But set that aside. It's, it is, again, let's just use my gravity analogy. It is a geophysical fact. And I'm talking to uh, somebody who has a, a more elevated degree than I <laughs> in those sciences, that it's not true. It's always sunny somewhere in windy. Uh, we have meteorological data going back a long time. It's frequently, whole continents are frequently becalmed and under cloud cover. So you can mm-hmm. go for days, in fact, even for a week with no wind anywhere on a continent and no sun. Mm-hmm. And, and if you had it all solar, you know, uh, Mark, that is a very good point, which I've never put forth in my writings about transmission lines, of which I've written a great deal. But I will tell you, I did read your book with Peter uh, Huber, and it was outstanding. And I can now, uh, having not seen your new book, 
tell you that I will write a three-part review of the book <laughs> and publish it probably at cfact.org where I write uh, every week. But just from what you've talked about on this program, I know it wouldn't, one article reviewing the book wouldn't be near enough. Uh, so I will do three articles. And of course, I'll be <laughs> stealing stuff right out of the book, giving you full credit, but it will I'm, be fairly easy to do this. Well, I'm, I'm uh, delighted you're going to do that. Flattered that you'll take the time and holding my breath that you don't find things to dis disagree with. But if you do, you know, bring it on because it's always good to have a debate. Um, some of my uh, excursions in other domains in the material sciences, I think, you know, given your background, you'll find interesting. And in fact, you know, back to your point about technology, I'm actually very optimistic about what technology progress can do, come back to the minerals and mining area. The industrial sector, that class of our, our industrial sector, the heavy construction industries, have not made significant progress technologically for quite a few decades. We, we had a huge, as you know, elevation in the efficacy of doing heavy construction and mining uh, from, well, let's say, roughly 1890 to, say, 1970. You know, there's a century of incredible improvement efficacy, which allowed the world to produce it is an astronomical increase in quantities of things like concrete and chemicals and steel without increasing their costs. I mean, it's incredible. Costs went down in, in real terms for the entire 20th century for almost all minerals and commodities, as you know, Julian Simon famously debated about. But they've been creeping up for the last two decades. Part of it is terrible government policies, but part of it is also that we sort of bumped into the physics limits of the machines that we're using to do the things the way we do them. I happen to think, and it's part of what's my book, that the combination of automation and software, improving the efficacy of, of how we can operate machines and the kinds of machines and materials, we're on the cusp of really bringing the first step change in efficiency there, which means ultimately we'll, we'll get lots more copper and the, the geo, you know, geophysics of the earth, there's lots of copper there. It's just, it won't happen in the timeframes <laughs> that the that the aspirants of a magical energy uh, transition hope it'll happen, it'll, but it'll yeah. happen in the lifetimes of our kids. Yeah, the unobtainium, as you call it in your video. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love I love unobtainium. I really, you know, <laughs> you know where that started because uh, it, it, it's a typical response. I remember one of my first jobs. The engineers would be told that they needed something by management. And it typically would be, if it was an energy space, it would be something, well, we, you know, we need something that's not expensive. It's highly reliable uh, and uh, easy to you know, handle and uh, will last, last a very long time. And you know, you know, any engineer would say, well, sure, we got that right here. It's called unobtainium. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we only have about three minutes left. So I'm really hoping we can address one other topic. It's so important. People who are concerned about greenhouse gases, well, what's China going to do with their future energy uses? What do you see happening there? Well, they've told us they're burning more coal. They're doing that right now. And they're opening coal mines. But what they're doing in the long run is what we should be doing, which is funding next generation nuclear power plants. So while probably the single most important thing we are not doing that they are doing is not building solar modules and panels, they dominate that. But they're going to dominate the future nuclear industry unless we step up. And the only phenomenology that's really different in energy in the history of humanity after combustion is nuclear fission. And there's more promise there technologically than any 
anything else anybody can imagine. We just haven't figured out how to make the kind of machines cheap enough and reliable enough, fast enough. But I think we're on the cusp of that. And that's, that's, that'd be a terrific place to see some, some government focus. Don't we see China building coal stations, new coal stations all over the world as well? Oh, oh yeah, of course. Uh, they're, they're the principal constructor of that. And uh, they, they're doing that for a very good reason. It produces cheap electricity for the emerging economies and they need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, the, last yeah. T- the last time I looked, Mark, there were over 200 nuclear power plants yeah. in some stage around the world. Yep. all the way from the drawing board to uh, actually beginning construction. So I think that as they develop around the world, the anti-nuclear sediment that exists here in the United States will begin to uh, subside. And of course, really got a rebirth at Fukushima. I had just written a book or edited a book on, on nuclear power. That very month it had come out when uh, the Fukushima occurred and they found me and I did a show on CNN explaining that nobody would die from radiation poisoning and nothing to worry about. I ended up doing 23 network shows and I got death threats uh, for saying something so outrageous. But I think uh, that's going to subside and the, the chance of seeing your prediction is it being the primary new thing, uh, again, in energy is going to come to pass. I think you're right. And in sharing uh, personal histories, I spent most of the week of the accident at Three Mile Island and then was a inveterate defender and preaching the gospel of the benefits of and the safety of nuclear energy for a number of years after that. A lot of attacks, uh, personal attacks at homonyms. The anti-nuclear movement hates nuclear power plants, but I do think that it will change. I agree with you. And I think as the world looks for a compromise, maybe the silver lining, let me end on an optimistic note since I'm the last optimist, maybe the silver lining of the crazy anxiety to not burn hydrocarbons will be the the compromise technology that's consequential, of course, is next generation nuclear. Mm. Yeah, exactly. We got to wrap up there. That was really fun. Talking to Mark Mills, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute in New York City. He was the Energy Writer of the Year by the American Energy Society in 2016. So thanks for being on the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. So this is Tom Harris and my co-host, Dr. Jay Lair, signing out from the other side of the story. Mm-hmm.